0: Welcome to Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we socially engineer our way into the data center to talk to the often unsung heroes of cybersecurity and find out about their journey so far, discussing the events that have helped shape their careers and see what they think of the road ahead. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Kathy Ullman, or Dr. Kathy Ullman, I should say, Principal Technology Architect in Security at University University at Buffalo. With over 20 years of technical experience across a wide range of security initiatives, including incident response, forensic investigations, compliance, security awareness. She's a very well-regarded thought leader in our industry. On top of this, Cathy is an active speaker at a variety of industry events and volunteers at some of the major security conferences, including DEF CON, B-Sides, and the most, much-missed DerbyCon. And as if this wasn't enough, she's picked up a PhD in philosophy along the way and used her critical thinking skills to recently publish a book called The Active Defender that seeks to help blue teams strengthen their defensive skills. Kathy, welcome to the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: And whereabouts are you joining us from today?
1: Uh, Right in my office at the university, University of Buffalo.
0: Fantastic. So what we'd like to do is start off with where your interest in technology first began. So what were your early interest in technology and how did you end up sort of starting off on this career journey?
1: So my introduction to tech is um, fairly unique um, in the sense that my father started as director of computing services in the college town where I grew up. And so what that meant for the time period was he helped run the mainframe. That was his job. And we had a terminal in our house from the time I was very small, uh, and so a lot of the folks that I know now, um, you know, it's kind of funny to to reflect back on on the early days. They were dialing into bulletin boards and and you know, in some of the very early technology spaces, uh, having to do phone freaking or some other things to to get access. Whereas I literally had it in my house. Um, we had a direct copper line to the college. We, the only time I ever heard when I was much younger, the only time I ever had a modem make noise was when my father would be testing the coupler connection to the dial, dial dial-up lines for the school. So uh you know we had an always on connection uh I had there were games written in fortran uh so the original uh, adventure and wumpus and zork and, you know et cetera, all of those things were right at my fingertips and uh I learned early on how to tell that into other systems and chat with people in other places uh, uh and in fact uh I learned how to do that early enough that um my parents ultimately divorced. and when I was with my mother, when she would when she was going back to school, I would use her account and tell that back into the system that my dad ran, so he and I could talk without a phone call and and those charges. So it was you know it was a pretty unique uh, experience compared to a lot of folks. And it was very, very early. It was, I mean, um, we moved into that area in seventy eight. and so by, The early eighties, at the latest, we had that terminal.
0: That's fantastic. So technology was literally hardwired into your your house in the early days. Then, with those early explorations of of systems and telnetting and learning, you could you know talk to all these other systems. Did you ever cause any issues for your dad and that the networks he was connected to by probing around?
1: I I didn't dare. (laughs) Um, I mean, to a certain degree, I I, there wasn't the systems I had access to. Uh, I I was doing the things I was most interested in, which was what other games do they have who can I talk to you know what interesting things are there? I never went down a path where it could have been questionable. I mean it certainly would have, could have been a possibility but I just it was just never anything I did and certainly when as things as time went by, um, I was very aware of any, issues my father would have with students or other people um, doing things they shouldn't. And I just didn't want to wind up in the middle of that. So, yeah.
0: Very good. So, well, that's quite nice, actually, because a lot of the people we have on this podcast, their early thing was, as you say, the bulletin boards and then getting in trouble for breaking things. So it's nice that you, you kind of came from the white hat side from the beginning there to to learn what you shouldn't be doing uh, from the interactions between your dad and students who'd maybe crossed the line there. So how did that, Early experience then, did that naturally set you on the path for I want to work in technology or were there other things that you thought might be interesting along the way?
1: So uh, it never even occurred to me that what I had experienced, A, was unique or B, was something I could ultimately do in my... Because back in the day, if you went to school for computers, it was computer science and it was programming. And I don't know that I had any interest in any of that. Um, my undergrad degree was in music industry. I wanted to work in record companies, uh, which I ultimately did do for a period of time. I worked in the entertainment industry. I ran a record store. Um, and really once I realized that my ethics and morals precluded me from continuing in that field, uh, because there were a lot of issues there, um, and I had some, uh, personal life drama, a boyfriend slash uh, fiance, we broke up, Uh, my grandmother got sick. And so I wind up moving home and Although I I did run a record store for a little while, it it was inevitable that I was going to have to find something else. And I had a very good friend who is the senior Unix admin um, at Northeastern University who said to me, why don't you get a job in tech? And I was like, what do I know about tech? And he says, do you not realize like you've been embedded in this for years? And I was like, okay. So that led me to my first job um, doing WordPerfect support uh, for... Many versions and many feature sets within WordPerfect. That was really my first technical job. Uh, and so that's really what led me on the path, uh, was that sort of realization, hey, I, I, I think I know stuff about this.
0: Um, actually, you know, in that kind of that unique skill set and journey that you've had, one of the things that came up in the research was that um, you were actually able to get a jump on the Nimda virus or worm um, very early on and actually protect a lot of systems.
1: So because my father was doing this for a living and he, so when when Microsoft became a thing and people were putting in uh, Windows NT networks, my father built the uh, environment in that college and we wound up taking classes together and he was very focused on security, uh, which meant that was sort of how I was looking at things. What ended up happening is I got a tip through him, through somebody else, and I don't remember the exact series of events, that, hey, uh, there was this really urgent patch that needed to be uh, placed on all the systems. So he tells me this, I go into the office, I patch all the systems that I was responsible for, I get everything all set, I shut everything down and I go home. And the next morning I came in And they, you know, the central IT I was working for part of the distributed community at the time was like, tell your users do not turn their machines on, like, don't touch anything, like, don't make sure that they just leave everything off. And so they herded us like cats into a room and said, there's this thing called Nimda. it's really terrible. And if you turn your systems on uh, without patching them, like, you're going to be in trouble. (laughs) <laughs> and I listened to this whole spiel and was like, "All right." And I get back to my office and I told everybody, "Turn your stuff on." I already patched it. So I mean, some of it was being plugged into that, in you know, that no, know, that knowledge base of folks and their information really early, um, and that really has been a pattern that that I have uh, tried to continue with. And because of my interest, we we had firewalls. On servers, we had software-based firewalls, which was not a thing that people were doing much of in the early days. So it was just, yeah, it was it's just something that uh, that I had taken from the, those early days and and the knowledge that I gained growing up in that environment. Um, but I, I mean, to a certain degree, I got lucky, right? Like the only reason we weren't our environment was not hit was simply because. I got word through the grapevine, this could be a really serious problem, and I got ahead of it.
0: And uh, for for the listeners at home as well, NIMDA was around 2001, and it was actually at the time caused a lot of uh, panic among people because it was shortly after uh, September 11th, there was initial speculation it was linked to al-Qaeda, turned out to be completely unfounded. I'm curious what, what it was like working in that kind of that that time in IT when there were these mega worms around, you know, there's seen Code Red, we've seen Nimda, which you know, people who were playing along is ad- admin spelled backwards.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting challenge. Uh, I mean, we were like I said, we were very lucky. Um, I because of how I was raised, I was as proactive as I could be. Um, you know, making sure that I patched as soon as we knew there were patches. Uh, I was also fortunate in that the environment where I was working, I didn't get a lot of pushback when I said, I need to do this and it needs to be done immediately and I can't wait uh, because otherwise there could be massive problems. The folks who were my superiors were like, go, do what you need to do. So I, you know, had I not been in a position where, I was, you know, my knowledge was accepted and greatly supported, it might have been very unpleasant. I think that for a lot of people, that was the case, right? Like, they wanted to do the right thing. They may have known about the patches, but they were either not in a position where they could easily patch everything because You know, those are the days before we had all of these mechanisms to do things remotely uh, in an easy fashion. Um, And or their management was like, no, you're going to interrupt the workday. This is unacceptable. You can't do that. Um, Systems were a lot slower. So it was, you know, being somewhere where no matter what we did, nobody died was probably the best possible experience because you know, we're we're not a bank, we're not a hospital. Um, you know, I was responsible for folks who were uh, guiding students in undergraduate advisement. And so a lot of their job was sitting and talking to students. So if I had to come into their office and do a patch, reboot the system and have them log back in again, even with while they were working with somebody that was
0: less of a big deal than it might have been otherwise. So you were in a position where you could actually do something about that and you had a, a, a good supportive leadership around you, allowed you to get on with it. What lessons do you think the industry in general learned from these mega worms? Because they, they, at the time, were dominating a lot of the threat landscape and they're now a thing of the past and we've maybe forgotten about some of the changes that went in after those. So what things have happened in the, in the landscape and what lessons have been learned since then?
1: So yeah, that's a really good question um, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say these are just in the past because we still see, I mean, maybe not those specific worms, but we still see things that are like that, um, you know, that are that are still seriously problematic. Uh, You know, we've we've moved to people understanding the need for security software on their systems. Um, You know, first it was. Antivirus. Then it was next gen antivirus. Uh, now it's uh, EDR um, or your flavor of the month. Um, so on the one hand, I think it's it did bring awareness to the fact that there's a problem, but it also drove sales of these products in ways that maybe were not uh, well thought through. So I think the industry understands that these products are important, but boy, if you're a small business, you're, you're scrimping, right? Like this is still, so honestly, I don't, I don't know what the industry has learned aside from the fact that we at least got to a point where people acknowledged, hey, there are vulnerabilities um, in some cases, straight up in how the code was written. Some, in some cases, it's how Threat actors can manipulate things that seem very benign, um, you know. So I, I think there's, to a certain degree, there's more awareness, and that's really good. But unfortunately, it's led to uh, what I refer to um, as as the blinky box syndrome, which isn't something I coined. Uh, a good friend of mine coined it, but it's just this idea that you know you're you're buying the next best. Security blinky box thing, but you haven't actually solved the problem.
0: <laughs> That's a common conversation we have with guests on this problem of you know, you're chasing the blinking lights, the magic AI, the, the magic box you plug in and it solves all your problems. And actually, a lot of the time, people just aren't doing those fundamentals that we know about. Like you said, it was deploy the patch, get ahead of it, you know, make sure you're aware of the things that are going on there, and people maybe. Still, to this day we're still seeing this with IoT devices and everything else, where it's we're acting as if vulnerabilities and unpatched systems are an entirely new problem. Um, so, one of the common things that we have as a theme with guests on this podcast is this hacker mentality, this hacker mindset, a natural curiosity to learn. But I don't think we've ever had a guest on before who's become a doctor of philosophy whilst working in an information security analyst role. So, I'm curious how that came about as you were developing your career. What what made you think, I also want to become a doctor in philosophy or study philosophy in general?
1: So, it's, it's kind of a strange story. Um, working in higher ed, we get courses deeply discounted in a variety of ways. Um, I already had a bachelor's and a master's, uh, and my father has a PhD in math, my mother and stepfather have doctorates in choral conducting. And I always thought, gee, I'd like a FUD. I don't have one of those. I want one of those. And at the time, I was dating a guy who had gone back to school for his master's in English. And I happened to do support. I, you know, I was doing uh, server and workstation support uh, for these various entities here. And one of them was the graduate school. And a good friend of mine in the graduate school said, have you thought about philosophy? And I said, no, I took one undergrad philosophy course, which I really enjoyed, but it had never occurred to me. And she says, I think you'd really like it. And so I went to talk to the department and they said, you know, we we suggest you take a couple undergrad upper level courses. You'll feel us out, we'll feel you out. Uh, and to make a very long story short, seven years later, I had a PhD in philosophy. Um, but, you know, I think... I I do think the, you know, the hacker mentality and thinking outside the box, like it all fits together, right? Like it seems really disconnected, like PhD in philosophy, IT, you know, security, but there's a lot more in common than people realize. And a few things have been particularly helpful, um, from the degree. Number one is that, uh, at the core of some of my, uh, PhD coursework was logic was work in logic, and that's helpful for everything. And the other thing is that I became a much more concise and clearer writer in general because the the papers that you're writing for philosophy that that is without a doubt one of the skills that that you have to master because they can only be so many pages and you can't. It's very easy to fall down a rabbit hole and and talk about things. Um, and go on and on and on, but not necessarily make a point. So that was without a doubt uh, a sk- Those two skill sets were were super helpful, and um, you know I'm I'm really glad that that I was able to to do that. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was unconventional. It was I think I'd like to do this. Okay, I'm going to do this.
0: <laughs> I mean, philosophy is just. It's a fantastic subject to study alongside anything else. You know, the Greek for ancient Greek for love of wisdom. So it's, it's just pursuit of knowledge for, you know, the, the joy of it kind of thing. Um, are there any, like, I'm curious if there's any specific examples or wisdom from philosophers or anyone in particular you can think of that actually, although it's ancient wisdom, very much applies to the security industry and some of the challenges we face today.
1: So it's funny you should ask that. Um, I, I think. That there is there are some interesting parallels, and and one of them is uh, the story of the cave, Plato's cave. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with that, but it, it tends to be one that, if people took any undergrad philosophy, uh, they're familiar with. But it's it's this idea that uh, you you only know what you know because that's what you've experienced so far in life. So in the story. There are these folks who are in a cave, they are shackled to the wall, they can't move their heads, um, and this is all they've ever experienced. So they see this as, quote, real life. This is all there is to it. Um, and then they see people going by the entrance to the cave and they see these shadows. So to them, everything that's a shadow is real because that's all they they know, At one point, somebody escapes the cave and goes outside in the sunlight and is blinded by all of this and is like, oh, my God, there's this whole other world. Now, if this sounds familiar, if you've seen The Matrix, uh, it is exactly the story that The Matrix, to some degree, is trying to make. And it's this idea that, you know, there could be this other world. We don't know. And there are all these sort of interesting dovetails um, with philosophy and movies and and you know, and security and and the hacker mindset. Um, because you are, if, if you are thinking outside the box, you're literally being exposing yourself to these environments that maybe you've never been in. And now you're suddenly learning that there's all this other stuff out there. So I don't know that, that, that there's direct wisdom, per se, except that, you know, you should be aware that your experiences and what you're seeing, um, there's probably more to it than you realize. Uh, and and that can open up a whole new world for you if you take that step.
0: Well, that's just a beautiful example to give to people. I think it's, you know, you've been to enough security conferences, you see everyone quoting Sun Tzu and the art of war. And it's nice to actually think of some of the, the broader, you know, lessons in there and dealing with people and the way we can approach situations so i think that that um, cave story is just a lovely example there um moving on as you've gone through your career you've got your sort of day job you've done the doctorate in philosophy uh, and you're now in a position where you're principal technology architect but it strikes me as you're a person who wears many hats in their role so i'm just curious is there such thing as a typical day in your role and what what that might look like
1: there really isn't a typical day um I mean, I some of the typical things that I'm looking at are uh, are what I guess a SOC analyst might be looking at. So I'm looking at accounts and logs and that sort of thing. Um, but I'm responsible for so many different things here at the university, and every day is a little different. So um, whether it's... Uh, I So I'm responsible for uh, the abuse queue. We get email into... Um, the university and, uh, you know, so in some cases I'm responding because somebody has told us like you have a compromised account or somebody's told us you have a problem with a web page um, or they're reporting that there's this uh, employment scam or phishing scam. So, you know, I sometimes I'm dealing with that. Sometimes I'm doing awareness talks. Uh, we have a an event called Business Day, uh, which is happening at the end of the month. And any opportunity I can to get in front of a group of people to educate them, I take advantage of. So I will be teaching them about social engineering. Um, They know kind of, I've done talks on some of the basics of like phishing and vishing and smishing and so that they understand like what these particular tactics are. But this talk I'm going to give has more to do with, you know, how does the attacker actually do what they're doing? Just to give them a little more background. It's not, they're they're not just getting that email. They're not just getting that phone call. There's a bunch of, Free work that goes into it. So, um, so awareness is a is a thing I do. Um, I do investigations with our police department periodically. Uh, I get contacted by external law enforcement entities when we when they need information. I work with them. Um, I work with employee relations. I mean, so it literally changes every day depending on what communications I receive, you know, from all of these different entities. And, uh, you know, of course, part of my day is staying on top of whatever is going on in the field. So, uh, you know, I doom scroll with the best of them.
0: <laughs> now, with so many activities going on there and you're wearing so many hats, be that, you know, behind a desk, getting in front of people, working with external parties. How do you balance all those different roles and responsibilities you've got going there?
1: Carefully carefully. Um, I mean, fortunately, again, because we're not a hospital, we're not a bank. uh, A lot of what I do is not urgent. I there are things that are. uh, And I've certainly had to work after hours and on, you know, strange two in the morning, rarely, but I I have gotten those calls. Um, But fortunately because of the nature of what we do there's a lot of wiggle room and that's i think where i you know i find time to to do some of these other things I am very fortunate because, uh, you know, again, my my management is incredibly supportive of what I do. Um, you know, even things like this podcast, like they're thrilled that, that I've done this. Um, they support me going to conferences. They pay for them when they can, which is mostly DEF CON at this point, because that's, you know, the most expensive. Um, but, you know, they're delighted to have somebody involved in the community. And so they, they give me
0: uh, a lot of flexibility to do that. And I don't know if you have an answer to this one, but what what do you define as success in, in your role?
1: So I think it depends greatly on the pieces of the role. So success for me is when I can like work with law enforcement, for example, uh, we might have a, a situation where we're concerned about somebody's life safety and I work with them and and based on what I what we're able to come together and find out. They're able to uh, find the person you know who's missing, and and or make contact with them, um, and determine that they're fine, uh, you know, or maybe they're not fine, but at least you know they they're they've located them and they're able to move forward. If it's awareness, um, you know, getting the message out and knowing when people reach out to me who I've not seen in a long time, or maybe I don't even know them personally, but they're like you know, I understand you're the person I can ask about XYZ subject on security. Um, and we're really not sure what to do. I mean, that's, I think that's a success too, right? Because they're, they're comfortable enough to come to me. And that is, I have worked very, very hard, um, in trying to foster that kind of relationship with people here. Our security office started in uh, 2006. I started doing forensics for the office part-time around 2007, 2008. They brought me in full-time in 2009. And I am the only person left from the original Group of folks that worked here, and we very we had very small. There were three of us, uh, and the other two individuals, one retired and the other one moved on. So you know, I have literally been able to mold how we do things in a way that uh, you know tries to instill in folks like, please, we'd really rather you reach out than have an oops. We understand we did when you do have one, you know, and and we're willing to help in any way we can, and so. You know, I to me that's probably one of the biggest successes, right? Is that people are comfortable. They will reach out. They aren't afraid to tell me when there has been a problem, um, and then you know we can go from there. Because one of the things I you know have to rail against periodically, there's nothing wrong with something like a phishing test, right? People have very strong opinions about phishing tests. And for some of the groups that I work with, they're required because that, you know, they, they literally have a requirement to do it. Um, but I make very clear to them that the way that you make those tests useful is not to look at who fell for the fish, but to look at who successfully did not fall for the fish. In a way, like, okay, you click the link. Yeah, everybody, you know, people click links. Like, it's not the end of the world. If if your system is the end of the world because they clicked a link, that's a technology problem. That's not, you know, you haven't put the layers in place that you need. If someone clicks a link, but does not enter their personal information, that's a win to me. And so, trying to reward the positive behavior and getting that positive behavior is another like super win. So anytime I've had to do something like that with a department, you know, I just, I make a point of explaining to them the goal of this is to find out who is doing the right things and capitalizing on that, not who's doing the wrong things. So that's, I I would say that's, that's another big part of it.
0: Uh, I think it's just such an overlooked aspect in this industry when we think about success and metrics and things that people are measured against and just security and IT in general being not the department that says no, not the department that blocks things, not the department you work around, but the department you engage with for for help and do that in a a very positive way. So it's wonderful to hear that that's, you know, how you're leading your your role there.
1: I was just going to say, I've worked very hard for us not to be the department of no. Um, So what I will typically say, even if it is a no, is, well, I don't know that we can do it the way you want to do it, but let's see if we can figure out a way that you can still achieve the goal you want in a more secure or safer manner.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's just nice to hear that, you know, you want to work productively with people. And like we say, it's just it's just so so missed in the industry where people almost feel like they have to be that grumpy person saying no to everything and just muttering under their breath about how everyone else is not knowing what they're doing. And actually making Inverset more approachable actually scales it out far more because you have people who become security ambassadors for you and represent the, you know, security to the wider business. So exactly, great to see you taking that approach. Um, With the things you were talking about there, you talked about working with the police and external parties and, you know, there can be some very positive outcomes that can be driven by that. But, you know, as someone with a background in digital forensics myself, I know that there is often a darker side. I think it's important to discuss some of the challenges that we face there as an industry. So I wanted to ask you about your experiences in digital forensics and the challenges of Maybe dealing with, you know, an investigation where you come across something disturbing, upsetting, illegal, and how you how people can handle those situations and what advice you'd give to people who might find themselves in those situations.
1: So the first thing I'll say is that I didn't go into law enforcement on purpose in part because, you know, basically there's two directions law enforcement uh, forensics winds up going in. One is fraud and the other is child pornography. Um Fraud is is the same thing over and over again and child pornography is incredibly upsetting. So one of the advantages I have of working in the environment I do is that it is not often that I would even be faced with either of those two things. Um, it is it, which isn't to say that I haven't seen things that were... There are things I can't unsee that I would love to be able to unsee. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think in general, if you're if you're in that field and you're and you are exposed to those kinds of things on a regular basis, uh, mental health is super important. And don't think that you are impervious to that. Um, you know, fortunately, I have not been exposed to anything super disturbing because i'm i'm not doing murder cases i'm not doing rape cases um you know but the things i have found that were upsetting uh you know i i have a mental health counselor and and we've talked about it and you know just being able to talk to somebody i obviously when you are working in forensics and you know, you're typically not in a position where you can talk about this with just anybody, right? But um, if you are lucky enough to have found a good mental health professional, there are ways you can talk about what you've seen and how upsetting it is without getting into the details of something that could breach confidentiality. There, There's definitely ways to deal, that, we deal with that. And I think just being able to talk about it um, and your feelings about it, regardless of what actually you're looking at, um, because you might see something that most people would find benign and you find really upsetting because you have some weird connection to it or whatever I, I think that's the key I think uh I'm I've been involved so so you mentioned Derby um you know I I didn't help with the con directly, but I was involved in mental health hackers early on uh, at Derbycon um when Amanda Berlin first founded it i I actually spoke at the last Derby con. Uh, I had been a participant at Derby for for a number of years, but I spoke at the Mental Health Hackers uh, Village telling uh, my story about finding a therapist and my journey because I find that there are a lot of assumptions about mental health and what counseling should be. A lot of people have seen the the trope with, you know, you lying on the couch and, you know, let's talk about your mother. And um, the reality is that good therapy is really is really nothing like that. And uh, finding a good therapist can be a challenge like any other medical profession. You can go to see a therapist and you can start to get close to them and then find out they're awful. Well, then what do you do? Well, you have to find another one, right? And And that's really hard because then you're starting all over again and you're telling whatever story it is that, you, that made you want to get some help. But it's so important because, boy, when you find the right therapist things will click and, 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 and it's hard work. It pays off. So that's, that's what I would say about, you know, about that darker side is, you know, make sure that you have the right foundations in place for mental health. If you are, you know, if you do see something like, like, don't wait, right? If you're in this field, or you're just coming into this field, don't wait until you suddenly see something upsetting. Like, make sure you have somebody on speed dial that you can call and be like, I think I need an appointment. Um, because you're going to want to have that relationship in place first.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your insights there because it's it's just such an important thing, not just in digital forensics, although that can be particularly troubling, but in the security industry in general, you know, we see a lot of the pressures of stress and burnout and things that we talk about in a, in an under-resourced industry, Um, you know very high pressure very high stakes thing you know you said a few times you're fortunate enough not to be managing like a hospital and things like that but people are very much on those front lines and need support uh, more than ever so really appreciate you sharing your perspective there. We'll we'll move on to a slightly lighter topic you mentioned uh, the link between philosophy and the matrix and actually the matrix is something I've seen you talk about before where You've mentioned the red pill moment of attending one of your first security conferences. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in that security scene and what that opened up for you?
1: So I had actually attended um, what I would consider like InfoSec conferences. I had been to like Microsoft stuff and I had been to other IT conferences. Um, But what I hadn't attended uh, was anything involving offensive security. And that's really the key here. I I was introduced to all of this uh, by somebody uh, who works for TrustedSec, and uh, he wasn't working there yet at the time. But the he but he works there now, and he I you know he had been in the offensive security space for a while, and I wanted to learn more about it. And he said to me, "Well, you should go to a B sides." And I was like what's a B-side? I'd never heard of that. It was something I was not familiar with. And so he explained that security B-sides are this series of, of, you know, loosely related conferences and um, that they can be a great place to kind of get your feet wet and, and meet new people and start to understand some of the offensive side of the house. So I Googled and found the very first one that was gonna be near me and it was besides Rochester and Rochester's hour and 15 minutes or so up the road. And so I bought myself a ticket. It was, I don't know, 20 bucks or something. And off I went. And I went by myself. And what I found not only was uh, was definitely this red pill moment because I was starting at that point to learn about this idea of offensive security but I also found a really welcoming community. Um, I, I sat down with people. I, I tend to be very outgoing, as might be obvious. Uh, I am an ext- extrovert. And so, you know, it is not horribly difficult for me to sit down with people I don't know and and begin a conversation. But, I, but even as an extrovert, if you don't really know anything about it and you start asking questions there are some places you go where people just won't tell you anything. They're they're reluctant, they're busy, whatever. And what I found going to that first B-Sides was that not only were people excited and super interested in telling me anything I wanted to know about whatever it was I was asking. So whether it was... Um, the competitions that were going on that day, something I didn't understand in a talk, um, you know, more about what they do and you know what is pen testing, what is red teaming, what are all these things I'd never heard of, but they were super enthusiastic and very willing to share. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. Certainly, I'd been in in places where you know we talked, we we commiserated about it and security and and problems but this was the first time where it it took kind of that next step and i felt so welcome uh and you know and just to fast forward that is the b-sides that i now run so just to put it in perspective
0: (laughs) and if there are people out there listening to this thinking i'm kind of interested but not sure how to get involved what would you say to them
1: I would say uh, there is a main B-Sides website that lists all the upcoming conferences. They're often on social media, but B-Sides is a worldwide organization. And so odds are there's a B-Side somewhere not too far from you. Um, And I would, you know, within your own community, ask people if they know about it, but but if you can't find anybody yeah google because um there is a security b-sides website that does list all of the conferences and where they are and typically where to find more information um you know we we Tend to uh, try make sure that we update the the folks that run that as soon as we know our new dates for the for the coming year and and that is true for most most b sides so that's that's where I would start I would start with with the website and the website's cool because it gives you sort of a history of what b sides is how it got started what to expect because every b sides is a little different we all do things just a little differently um, but they're all meant to be wonderful accessible interesting events um, that are typically very inexpensive if not free. So it's a great place to get
0: started. Yeah, there's such a fantastic uh, resource just to to attend and go to and learn things. I've been a volunteer at the London one, the Manchester one, which is sort of not not progressing at the moment, but there's new ones popping up just as fast uh, in the local area. So, Seeing in the uk in particular we're seeing a lot of b-sides events pop up and for people who are curious about it look on youtube as well because there's so many of the b-sides events where they'll post all the talks on youtube as well so you can really get a feel for the events and the presentations and that welcoming atmosphere where it's not just all about consoling about the latest microsoft patches it's about discussing things in a productive way so great great to see you being involved there and leading on uh, one of those b-sides events Um, beyond b-sides as well in terms of your uh, you know, education and getting things out there. You've recently uh, published a book, so I'd like to talk a little bit about that. I have. The book's called I "The have. Active Defender." What is it that people should? Uh, uh, what's the key message you're hoping people take away from that book?
1: So, the motivation was really um my experiences uh, jumping into the world of offensive security and everything that I've learned from it. So you know, as a defender, as I mentioned, I really was very unaware of that side of the house at all. Um, I think a lot of people come into security through being a sysadmin. They may come into it through a small organization uh, that, you know, doesn't do anything with pen testing or red teaming or any of the offensive security space. Uh, So, you know, I, I honestly was completely ignorant of it until I, you know, fell down the rabbit hole, um, went to that first B-sides and I thought, gee, I can't be the only person in the defense space that has experienced this. And so I started just putting together an outline. I had kind of a basic idea of what I was thinking I wanted to share because it really was about giving back to a community that had given me so much. And I started to share it with some, you know, pretty well-known, experienced folks. And, you know, and I said, what do you think? And they they said, yeah, you really need to write this book. Um, and one of them is, is Jake Williams, uh, known as Malware Jake. And he not only said, you should write this, he said and I want to write the foreword for the book. And I thought, oh my, I really do need to write this book. Um, and, and I've been very honored because he also jumped in and, and wound up being my technical editor. So it, it, that's really where it started. Um, it was a way to give back to the community, uh, a, a message that I really felt like I wish I had had. Um, and so that way I could could give it to others. And, uh, you know, in terms of the messaging from the book, you know, number one, it's, hey, defense, be aware there's this thing called offense, uh, and you want to know about it because it will help you build a hacker mindset, uh, even if it's not something you've thought of, because the more you immerse yourself in this space, which is not the same, you don't have to change jobs, you don't have to get new certifications. But the more you experience spending time with these folks, and the more you can learn from them, the better a defender you are because you understand what's possible. And that was certainly one of the biggest eye-opening experiences I had spending time in that space. Um, was you know you're you're taught as a defender if you do X Y Z, uh, you're good to go until the next patch uh, or the next vulnerability. And that's really a very naive space. And so that's actually one of the talks that I've been giving at conferences is you know this sort of difference in how defense and offense approach you know, even the same system and how they look at it. And if you don't understand how an offensive security professional is looking at your system, then chances are you're missing something significant because an attacker is gonna look at it the same way
0: that's just such a valuable thing like i said in the you know the, the question at the start there that the blue team often doesn't get the love they deserve and people often think well if i want to do the offensive thing i have to become a red teamer and i have to just sit there breaking things and we've seen this move towards like purple teaming and people working together with offensive teams but for many organizations it's just about adopting that mindset into the, the blue team into the defensive space of how would an attacker think about this? What am I? What do I think I need to do to defend against this? Is that the kind of the thing you're trying to tackle there?
1: Yes, exactly. So the example that I that it's in the book and that I give in this talk is your basic web server. You know, as a as a defender, the way you look at a web server is you you think about okay, I'm going to install the the hardware and the software, and I'm going to patch it, and I might run a vulnerability scan, and you know all the best practices we possibly can, and it's a checklist. Um, and when I'm done then I'm done, right? But your offensive security professional is going to look at that exact same box and say, huh, you have port 80 and 443 open. What can I do with that? And most importantly, they're going to say, how is this system that I now have access to related to anything else in your environment? Because what OffSec is looking at are relationships, defense doesn't often pay attention to the relationships between systems in the way that offense does. So it's absolutely about, you know, um, that mindset and, and really understanding how to see these systems in a different way and how you can put that to your advantage.
0: It's, absolutely similarly my colleague mark mayfrey draws into us here um at beyond trust that attackers thinking graphs whereas defenders thinking lists you know we're thinking this is our silo in the organization this is the thing we're doing have we met the, the compliance and the checkboxes and all that side of things whereas actually systems are very interconnected very dynamic these days and attackers can exploit that from any particular angle. So the more we can get that mindset into people to the, the more secure we can make the systems um We're almost out of time today here, but I'm just curious as as we wind up where you think the industry is going in the in the next five years or so, and what challenges you think you'll need to tackle in that time.
1: Well, I touch on this a little in the book. I mean, I think the patterns we're starting to see, you know, where we're headed, um, are things like uh, bring your own vulnerable driver, so drivers and um, a variety of supply chain issues. I mean we had seen onesie twosies issues like that and now we're seeing more and more it used to be you know as long as you avoided certain manufacturers things were okay and you're going to see this with hardware you're going to see this with software uh i i think those are the kinds of issues that we're likely to be forced to to face right um most Decent size organizations may have a plan for making sure that the software on their systems is updated regularly, but they probably don't have the same kind of uh, processes in place for firmware. And it may be the case that what firmware they have is not even updatable. So, you know, it's there are some significant challenges coming down the pike uh, that are related to what we're already seeing now.
0: And reflecting on your, you know, you've been over 20 years in this industry, you know, right from the early days of being hardwired in with copper connections direct to your house, what have been the biggest changes and positive or negative that you've seen in the information security industry?
1: Oh, that's a tough, tough question. I think, I mean, I think operating systems have gotten more full featured and in some cases more secure, um, you know people rag on on Microsoft and Defender is certainly not the be-all end-all. But boy, uh, compared to even a lot of third parties, the fact that you now can buy a machine that has Defender installed on it um, and you don't have to buy a third party because it, you know, it understands the operating system better than other things. Um, you know, I, I think the advances that have been made... Uh, certainly are significant in terms of, of these, you know, software packages and the way that people are understanding how to secure their systems. Um, you know, the, it's certainly come an awfully long way. It's a tough question in part because, you know, I, I watched from the point where we were doing dial-up and no one really cared so much about things like firewalls because your connection was so slow, what were you going to do anyway? Um, to people having high-speed connectivity at home, which now means that, you know, they're easy targets, right? But the flip side to that is, you know, there are manufacturers that do make products to try to to secure things um, and prevent your average home user from a direct attack, which doesn't mean that they don't get horrible phishing and other kinds of social engineering messages. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's a really tough question. I I think there's some good things uh, and there's some not good things as defense has certainly um, increased and we've gotten better at what we do. Attackers have to be that much more clever. And so understanding how you know offensive folks have to do their jobs
0: uh, is, is really important. I'm gonna end on a slight curveball, I'm afraid, Kathy, because there was a question that I came across doing my research that fascinated me, and I couldn't quite work out how to fit it in in this interview, so I thought I'd just throw it in at the end, which was in an old bio of yours I saw on a website. It said that you were involved in researching death and the dead. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about why you were researching death and the dead and what you found there?
1: Oh, sure. So um, one of my side hobbies that have literally nothing to do whatsoever with technology, um, I am in a living history group called the Society of Creative Anachronism. And we recreate the Middle Ages uh, from about the fall of the Roman Empire to about 1600, 1650. And I have had an interest in death and death culture and the dead from the time I was a very little girl. Um, and the answer to why is I don't really know, but my bus stop was right next to a cemetery. So, so I blame that. Um, I've always found the topics interesting. It's uh, a little off the wall and, uh, and unique. So in that living history group, I started out by researching medieval death and uh death culture and what happened in that time period but i have since expanded to doing some local research uh, in my hometown and and giving talks on on that subject too so it's 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 kind of a neat space that, that while i use technology to do the research it has nothing directly to do with technology it it's kind of a neat way to to escape some of the the tech challenges of the day
0: that's another great example I guess of the the love of wisdom that uh, drove you to philosophy in the first place so it's really interesting to hear you've got that curious mindset and it expands well beyond the, the field of technology so uh, I appreciate that one it just really piqued my interest when I was reading a bio view that had all these technical qualifications and then said also researches th- uh, death and the dead so uh, thank you for sharing that with us it's really interesting
1: yeah you're welcome I mean that's why I throw that in there because it, it is different and and it's not just tech right so
0: and before we wrap up today if people are interested in finding out about, more about you the book b-sides events where's the best place to find you
1: um so i'm on most social media uh i'm on linkedin you can find me on on twitter x whatever they're calling it today uh my handle on that is investigator Chih, chi because for whatever reason it's one letter too long to be investigator chick which is my handle um, and on Mastodon, I'm investigator chick. Uh, I, I'm on a variety of discords, uh, Black Hills, for example. Um, I've been, you know, my sex. So the easiest way to, to, to find me is probably the, the, the public, uh, social media spaces, but, but I am also in these, in these other
0: chat spaces. That's great. And thank you very much for your time with us today. Really appreciate you joining us and, you know, thanks for sharing your fascinating journey and thoughts on the industry from those early days of teenage telnetting to staying ahead of some of the biggest internet worms that, you know, organizations have faced, using philosophy to help guide the activities of the Blue Team through your books, your community involvement and linking, you know, the ancient wisdom to the modern Matrix movies. I think it's, uh, it's been a really interesting conversation to so really appreciate you and all the great things you've been doing there. I look forward to seeing what comes next. As always, thanks to Super Producer Ben and the team at Beyond Trust who make this happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been Adventures of Alice and Bob.